Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Well, uh, back in the day, I was a farmer, as many of you know, and at the same time, for 14 of those 17 years, I was a school bus driver. A fringe benefit of school bus driving, (laughs) unlike farming and, frankly, pastoring, was that I would always drive back into the yard at the end of the afternoon run at exactly the same time every day. And then when our two boys were young, first with Matt and then with Zach, uh, would come really the favorite part of my entire day. About 4.45 in the afternoon, I would walk in the front door of our small two-story farmhouse, and almost immediately, I would hear a shout and a running of feet upstairs, and I knew if I was carrying anything at that time, it was, it was the moment to get rid of it. The feet would take the turn at the bottom of the stairs, followed shortly afterwards by a flying leap into my arms. Now, I didn't take this lightly. This was not like being a receiver for the bombers. <laughs> Whoops, I missed. No. These were, these were important catches, right? We named this ritual after the shout that came as I opened the door each and every afternoon. Daddy's home. Daddy's home. Daddy's home. And Daddy's home and the run and the catch game would be on. And we played that game for years. And then one day, the day came for each of them that I said, we can't play the game anymore. Our days playing the game are over. And they were pretty sad. They didn't want to stop playing the game. They'd ask, why, Dad? Why do we have to stop? And I had to say, well, I'm not getting any younger, for one thing. I'm not nearly as able as I was to catch you every time. And for another thing, my back is bothering me a little bit, and I wouldn't want to drop you. You're that important to me. And for another thing, you're 18. Let's get over this. (laughs) And then I would tell them, you're growing up. And to grow up is a wonderful thing. And it may be that one day you'll get married and you'll have children, and now they do. And maybe someday it will be your little children that come running and hurl themselves into the air, and you'll get to play catcher for a while. And they are. It's a wonderful game. Daddy's home. Perhaps some of you this morning have expressed joy and gratitude because of the years you've spent playing the game Daddy's Home. For some others, there has been a fair amount of pain, either because of the loss of a father or ambivalence or difficulty or heartache in the relationship. But I want to talk particularly to dads among us because we live in a society that is gradually losing its belief in the idea of fatherhood. Tonight, this very night, about 40% of all children in North America will go to bed in a home where their father is absent. I believe that it has never been harder to be a good father than it is now. You can look at our culture and our media and see evidence of this all over the place. And the crisis is not just that there is an absence of fathers. There is in our culture an absence of our belief in the importance and the nature of fatherhood. The idea is that fathers are somehow optional equipment for a family. And I want to say very clearly this morning that God's plan is not that fathers are optional. Now, I want to pause, having said this, and say something else very clearly this morning to you. I want to take just a moment for us to recognize that the fact that in our midst, even this morning, are many single parents 
either here with us or watching online. Welcome to all of you online. Happy Father's Day, dads out there. But many, there are many single parents in our midst, particularly single moms, and they face a monumental task. Father's Day can often be a very painful day for people in this position because life is difficult enough. And when they hear talk about how indispensable fathers are, it can just add to the painful pile. So I thought it would be appropriate for us to just pause for a moment, take a moment to stop and recognize that all of you in our midst who seek to raise and nurture and support a family as single parents in God-honoring ways, you face a Herculean task. And your perseverance, your faithfulness, your determination in the face of overwhelming obstacles is an inspiration, frankly, to us all and is honorable, really honorable in the sight of God. And you need to know that you single parents are heroes. You're just heroes. And those of you young men who are leading small groups in kids' ministry or middle school or high school, cabin leaders at camp this summer, I wonder if you realize that just by being there, just by filling that hole, being an example to some who may not have that example in their own family, I wonder if you realize that you are also heroes. You're all heroes in my book. And speaking of heroes, I want to honor the fathers here and at home watching. Our church is blessed to have a host of godly fathers, godly dads, and we're going to pray for them right now. So I'm going to ask you, if you're a dad here this morning, and uh, if you would just get past that, you know, that, that modesty that we all have, and that you would just uh, stand for a moment that we might pray for you. Would you stand? Even if you're at home right now and you've got family gathered all around you, just stand. Go ahead, stand up. You see, you deserve to be honored. And we want to pray for you this morning. So let's pray together. I'll pray for us all. Heavenly Father, thank you for every man who's here or every man who's with us online today who has accepted that challenge of raising their kids. These fathers matter to you, and they have a tough challenge in our day of juggling schedules and careers and trying to lead and raise a godly family. So, Lord, give them the strength and the energy and the focus that they need not just to succeed in the world, but maybe more importantly, actually way more importantly, to succeed in their homes and to raise up the kind of children that you want them to raise. Father, we pray that they would be honored today because they're trying to honor you and you've promised in your word that those who honor you, you will honor. We pray, Father, that you would grant them wisdom, discernment, patience, and much love as they watch over their children. Protect them, keep them spiritually and morally pure that they may be the examples for their family and to our community. And Lord, I pray today that all of us as men would have open hearts and minds and ears to really hear what you have for us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name and give thanks for our dads. And all God's people agreed and said, amen. Please, guys, thanks. Have a seat. I remember this quite vividly, and I'm not going to share the name with you, but a movie star some years ago decided to become a parent without having a father in the family. And her comment on her choice was this, 
and it was splashed all over the media at the time, men are just pinch hitters. What's the big deal anyway? In other words, the father's just a pinch hitter, just to be there to get things going, and then kind of irrelevant after that. And this kind of thinking is fairly rife in our society. It's wrong. It's so wrong. Dads, you are, are an indispensable part of the life of your child because God planned it this way. There's a statement in the Bible from the letter Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus that's addressed to fathers where Paul says, and fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, that verse is often thrown at dads like you're messing up, you're not quite good enough, you're not doing this, but there's something sort of underneath it all that's almost taken for granted, an assumption by Paul that we often miss. You see, Paul's assumption is that fathers are intimately involved by necessity in the raising of their children. So that when he talks about the process of shaping a child's life, he naturally addresses fathers. He's not singling out fathers, he's just naturally addressing fathers. See, in our culture, fathers often think of themselves as spectators in child raising, but it has not always been that way. 200 years ago, when child-raising manuals were written, generally they were addressed to fathers. 200 years ago, if a couple went through a divorce, custody of the children almost always went to the father because there was an assumption that dads were intimately involved in raising their children as much as the mothers were. They were involved in passing along life skills that would enable their children to live, function outside the home. They were involved in preparation for marriage, and very often they were involved back in the day in the selection of a life partner for their children. They were involved in the moral and religious education of their children. As a father, you bring unique gifts to the life of your child. God did not make you a pinch hitter. You're on the team. You are not optional equipment. Another implicit cultural view is, is that becoming a mother will totally change a woman's life, but that fathering is something that a man can do kind of on the side, in his spare time, not really going to change you. Now, this got expressed 48 years ago, this month, in a classic song about fatherhood by a good old Canadian boy from Ottawa named Paul Anka, called Having My Baby. And if you reflect on the lyrics of this song, it expresses some interesting thoughts. And I'll quote, having my baby, wonderful, what a wonderful way of saying how much you love me. Having my baby, what a wonderful way of saying you're thinking of me. Now, if I'm thinking of my wife, Jennifer, and I might write her a text or come home with a treat, something fairly simple, done fairly quickly, very inexpensively often, but apparently, according to this song, a woman's mind works much differently than that. Apparently, in Jennifer's mind, it would go something like this. How can I let Lauren know that I'm thinking of him? I know. I'll swell up like a toad for nine months, then pass a creature the size of a bowling ball out of my body, and then, then he'll know I'm thinking of him. Frankly, when she was having our boys, I was kind of hoping she wasn't thinking of me at all right then as the cause. <laughs> if you're going to be a dad in our society, you need to see fatherhood for what it is. It's a costly deal. It's a challenging thing. There's just no way around that. But it is also an heroic and noble endeavor. 
It is a call for the very best men that you have to give. It's not a hobby. It's not a pastime. It's not something to do on the side. It will call for your best intelligence, your finest judgment, and for all of your heart. It will require a very tough decision to say, I will devote time and energy to what is the most valuable over that which might give me external rewards, a raise in pay, whatever. See, most men seem actually want to be and are, tend to be, feedback junkies. We grow up in a kind of performance-based world where we, we can measure how we're doing based on our one lost record or our grades in school or our profit and loss margins. It's often why we think of men still as being little boys looking for affirmation. It's really that we need feedback. We need to know how we're doing. We need to measure it somehow. We, we, things that come to us in our daily world are pretty much like that. We like hard, objective numbers that tell us where we are in the standings. We get satisfaction from things that are concrete and measurable and we can put our hands on. But in the daddy game, in the daddy game, the data is very seriously squishy. We'd be more comfortable if the daddy game could be scored and we would be made into some kind of competitive sport. I'm in third place right now, but two more fishing trips and I should qualify for the daddy playoffs. Something like that. Or we could do daddy trash talk. You call that being a daddy? Don't bring that weak stuff in here. That kind of thing. Dads are more comfortable with that kind of a process and thinking. Now, when you become a father, you make an investment. You may not see the payoff, the return for so many, many years. You may never see it at all. It requires the patience to keep on playing without ever really knowing the score. And that's very counterintuitive for most of us men. It means that very often we'll go through long stretches of time where we don't really know how well we're doing in the daddy game. We don't get immediate feedback. It's just the way the daddy game works. So let's talk about some things that Jesus taught us to do to win at the daddy game. We're going to talk primarily to fathers, obviously, today from Jesus' prayer in John 17. But the principles there really obviously apply to everybody who has some kind of influence over another. And honestly, that encompasses all of us in some way. If you know someone else, if you have friends, family, coworkers, fellow students, you have influence. Whether you're a mom or a dad, a man or a woman, a student or a businessman, whether you're married or unmarried, if you are a believer in Jesus, there are certain roles God has called you to play in life, and one of them is to have spiritual influence on those around you. Let me read you the introduction to John 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. This is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus' goal of life was to bring glory to God. And it makes sense that if we do the same things that Jesus tells us in his prayer that he did that gave God glory, that if we follow them in leading our children, we're going to bring glory to God too. It's interesting to me that Jesus says, I brought glory to God by completing the work 
He says that the work is finished. Think about this. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't gone to the cross. So what work had Jesus finished? He's not talking about paying for our salvation, that work he did on the cross. He's, he's, he's not talking about that. He's not talking about rising from the dead on Easter Sunday. He's saying, Father, I finished the work you gave me to do. What was it? It was the work of being a spiritual father to his followers. We're going to look at some of the characteristics today. What does it mean to be a spiritual father, to be a leader in your home or anywhere else? You do the things that Jesus did with his followers. And the first thing he did was help them to know God. Dads and moms, this is our number one responsibility as parents to help our children know God because their eternity hangs in the balance. Could there be, <clears throat> excuse me, could there be anything more important? Going on in verse 6, Jesus says, I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me. There are a few key words here that we need to pay attention to. The first are in the phrase, they were always yours. I want to remind you all here today that we don't own our kids Theoretically, in this big picture of things, they're not ours. They're not something that belongs to us. They belong to God. He created them. They aren't and never were ours first. They're his. They're God's children above all. God entrusted them into our care for a period of time in which he wants us to parent them, to influence them, to lead them, to be an example for them. And thus, parenting is really about stewardship. It's saying, God, I'm looking after that which you've put under my care. The second word is revealed. I revealed you to the ones you gave me. Notice he doesn't say, I lectured on what it was that you gave me. I preached on it. I sermoned on it. I pontificated about it. No, he says, I revealed Revealed carries the idea that this was seen. It was revealed. It was his example that revealed that, it was, that people were able to see what it was to be a spiritual leader, to be a father. This is one of the most sobering facts that I could possibly say to you dads, and in fact, everyone who has influence, but particularly to parents. For right or wrong, for good or bad, whether you like it or not, your children's first and fundamental and basic ideas about God are largely determined by the kind of model you are. Some months ago, I heard a touching story about a humble, a humble guy, a humble dad, whose young son had become very ill. After the boy had undergone an extensive series of tests, the father was told the shocking news that his son had a terminal illness and was not expected to live much longer. The youngster had accepted Jesus as a savior, so the father knew that the death that this son would have would actually usher him into glory. But he wondered how to, how to tell this to him, how to inform one just starting off in life that he would soon die. After earnestly seeking the direction of the Holy Spirit, he went with a heavy heart through the hospital to his son's bedside. When he got there, he read his son a passage of scripture. Then he said a prayer 
with his dear child. And then I gently told him that the doctors could promise him only a few more days to live. And he went on to ask his son, are you afraid to meet Jesus, my son? Blinking away the tears, the little boy said bravely, no. Not if he's anything like you, Dad. The model we are shows who God is. At least the impressions that our kids get. So here's four things. Four things to see in us. Four things that we can see in God's example. And they all start with see. God is caring. He's always loving. He's unconditionally caring. He's compassionate. He cares about us. He's proved it over and over. And second, he's close. He's not distant. God is not far away. He's not detached. He's always available. He's always accessible. He's always ready to listen when one of his children wants to talk to him. Three, he's consistent. God doesn't have good days and bad days. God isn't moody. God isn't capricious. One day he slams you and the next day he's praising you. No, God isn't like that. He's consistent. And fourth, God is competent. When I bring God my problems, he can handle my problems. There's nothing that God can't handle. If we want our kids to grow up knowing God in that way, then this is the way we must be. We must be close to our children. We must be caring. We must be consistent. We must be confident in the way that we lead. We must care about our kids and show them what God is like in the real sense of the word. Why? Well, Jesus tells us two reasons, and they're both in this chapter in John 17. I have made you, talking about God the Father, known to them, and, I, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. This is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Simply putting knowing God that they can enjoy and experience his love and find assurance of, it, of eternal life from the creator who made them. Those are the two things. Knowing God and experiencing his love. Before our kids can grow spiritually, they've got to know him first, right? They have to know him personally. They have to come to their own point of decision where they say it's no longer mommy or daddy's faith, it's my faith. Now, some of you might be saying, Lord, it's too, Lauren, it's too late for me. My kids have grown up. Let me tell you something from one who's old enough to know. It's never too late. It's never too late to start being the kind of spiritual leader that a parent is called to be. You may have grandkids now. It's never too late to start. It's just never too late. The second responsibility of being a, a spiritual leader in your home, or for that matter, anywhere else is, teach them God's word. I have passed on to them the message you gave me. In verse 14, he adds it again. I have given them your word. The word of God is our foundation. It's what we build our lives on and should also be what we build our children's lives on. It's the truth. It's solid. It's our, it's our owner's manual. It's the guidebook. Jesus said, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I want my kids to be free. How about you? 
I don't want them to be bound up by guilt. I don't want them to be bound up in worry. I don't want my kids to be messed up by resentment. I don't want them to be pressured by the expectations of others. I don't want them to be a slave to the fashions of the day, the therapies of the moment that will be out of date tomorrow and cast aside. I want my kids to be free. There's only one way to have your kids free. The truth will set them free. When you build your life on God's word, then you live a life of genuine freedom. And there is happiness, and there is joy, and there is passion, and there is purpose when you build your life on God's word. Your kids are going to build their life on something. If it's not the word, then it's going to be the world. Which of those do you think is a more solid foundation? The world's trends, pop culture, issues of the day, or the word of God, which is unchanging and solid and stable and builds character. There's really no comparison, is there? You can spare your kids an awful lot of headaches and heartaches and heartbreaks if you will teach them to rely on God's word as the sole authority in their life. If God says it's the right thing to do, then it is. I'm going to build my life not on pop psychology, but on the eternal word of God. Parents, God expects you to be the primary teacher of his word. That means you have to know it. And for a lot of people, that means catching up. It means catching up and getting into some kind of study. Can I encourage you to consider joining one of our cell groups if you're not in one already? Start planning your schedule for the fall now so that you can attend one. Find some study material you can do on your own at home or with your children. There's lots of resources out there. Let me give you several practical ideas. One, when they're little, read them Bible stories before they go to bed. You can go to our church library or online or any Christian bookstore and get these children's Bible story books which have the stories of the Bible in simple terms and pictures so that kids growing up can learn the stories of the Actually, I hear staff people talking about it being one of their favorite books. Forget kids. Everybody loves these books. So the kids growing up can learn the stories of the Bible and they know who Joseph and Jacob and Jeremiah and Jonah are. They recently did a survey of kids in grade school and discovered all kinds of goofy things like most kids think that Noah's wife is Joan of Arc. They know more about SpongeBob SquarePants than they do about Paul and Barnabas. I would also encourage you to memorize Bible verses together. The way we often do this in the Pearson household as our sons were growing up was through songs. We'd sing them most often in the car when we were going off to somewhere, somewhere often frankly when they had a particularly meaning, particular meaning in the moment. I can't tell you how often we sang, do everything without complaining, do everything without arguing. You can guess when we start to sing that one in the car. You'd be amazed how, how uh, many ch child-friendly songs there are out there and are simply scripture verses put to song. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I've heard people say, I don't want to force religion on my kids. I don't want to force them to go to church. What if the first grades your the first grades your child in the first grade your child decides <laughs> I'm done with school I don't like it I don't want to go I would guess for the next 11 more years or so you're going to say ha tough tooties you're going whether you want to go or not you're going to school that's the way it is well let me ask you what's more important 
going to school or their, their eternal destiny? What parent would take a four-year-old and say, you're now old enough to open the refrigerator, therefore, you can now start the stove and cook for yourself? We're not going to force you to eat any meals anymore. Just whenever you're hungry, go to the fridge, open it up, cook, do whatever you want. I can remember when there were times when it was well past the agreed-upon time to be up and getting ready for church when it was noticed that there hadn't been any move towards lifting a finger to getting dressed and getting ready. Perplexed, the question was asked, why aren't you getting ready for church? The response was, because I'm not going to church. So, of course, the next question was, why not? Well, because it goes too long and nobody likes me and, and I just don't feel like it. And to this, Jennifer replied very wisely, I thought at the time, well, I have three reasons why you should go. First, it's usually only 75 minutes or so. Second, you definitely have some friends there who like you. And third, you're the pastor, come on. <laughs> I pretty much couldn't argue with that one. One of the best things, one of the best decisions that Jennifer and I ever made I think was coming to the realization early on in our married life that if we waited until Sunday morning to decide if we were going to church, that we were way more unlikely to go, yeah, let's go. We would always ask the question, do you feel like going to church today? And we had a myriad of excuses. We were so busy yesterday. We were out so late last night. We didn't sleep well. Sleep well. We have to go out later. We haven't had any time to ourselves yet this weekend. Let's just have some family time this morning. Let's take a holiday from church and just enjoy this Sunday morning. It's bad enough when you say that and talk each other out of going to church, but think about what your kids are hearing, or worse yet, participating in that discussion. What is the inference behind all of those phrases that I said? Church is a chore. Church is something we have to endure. Church kind of ruins Sunday morning and our fun. Church is not something we want to do or look forward to. In short, our pleasure comes before pleasing God does. So the underlying point here is whether you like it or not, we are teaching our kids something all the time. Yes, there are particular teachable moments, but that can be misleading because you're actually teaching your children something 24-7. Every moment, every decision, every conversation, everything not said, every look, every action, all of it. Early on in our marriage, we reviewed our tendency to cop out on a Sunday morning and decided that church attendance was no longer up for grabs. We were not even going to wake up and ask the question anymore. We were simply just going. And I truly believe it spilled over onto our kids when they came along. I don't honestly remember either one of them ever saying, I don't want to go to church. They just knew, and this was long before I was a pastor, they just knew that this family goes to church. And we all still do. And you know, there are all kinds of spin-off benefits. Our sons made good friends at church, which is important because at times, peers often have more influence on them than parents do, right? At church, they were also exposed to other adults who were good role models and good influences, teachers, youth leaders, family friends. Matt's baseball coach in the early years came as a result of a church connection. Zach's volleyball coach came through a family at church. They were going to influence our kids. They were going to have the ear of our kids. How much better to know that they, too, had values and principles like our own. 
Teach your children to study the Bible for themselves. You say, I don't even know how to do that? Then you need to start doing it for yourself. What if you had one thing each day that you could share with your kids, learn from your own time with God? Just a little bit of fresh bread that you could just lay out on a plate before them and say, enjoy. This is what God said to me today. There's all kinds of teaching and influence embedded in that. One of our goals as parents should be to raise our children to look after themselves. A crucial area often overlooked is to do that in spiritual matters. Our goal should be that we teach our children to be self-feeders on the word of God, not ones who are stuck in the high chair forever demanding that someone feed them. The third characteristic of a spiritual leader, Jesus prayed for them. Jesus prayed for the people he was leading. He says this, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. We need to pray with our kids. We need to pray for our kids if we're going to be the spiritual dads and moms that God has called us to be. What do I pray? Ah, you pray the five purposes of God. God's five purposes for your children are the same five purposes for your life and the same five purposes for the church. Jesus prayed for all five purposes in John 17 in this prayer. First, he prayed that they'll live for Christ joyfully. We need to do this, and we need to pray that for our kids. Jesus said in John 17, I pray these things while I'm still in the world so that they will have the same joy that I have. I want my kids to be filled with joy and expressing it, don't you? I want them to be filled with God's love and joy. There's a word for this. It's worship. It's worship. Anytime you're expressing your joy to God, you're worshiping. Worship is a celebration. Worship isn't some duty, some demand, something we do at the beginning of every service just to kind of get us all in the mood. It's a delight. I love you, Lord. I worship you. I enjoy being with you. That's what worship is, enjoying God. When you learn to live for Christ joyfully, you are living a life of worship. How great would it be if that's one of the values we give to our kids? Second, Jesus prayed that they'll grow strong spiritually. Well, how do we do that? We don't grow by things being comfortable, unfortunately, things being easy, things being convenient. In fact, when things are going great in our lives, you all have realized by now, I suspect, that you don't actually grow. You coast when things are going great. We grow when we grow through tests. We grow when we go through trials, through trouble, even when we experience temptation. Because it's always an opportunity, you see. It's always an opportunity to choose to do right. We grow through resolving problems. We grow through overcoming pressures. So when Jesus prays for their growth, he doesn't pray that God will make life easy for them. Jennifer and I never prayed that God would make life easy for our sons as much as we would want it. I think as parents, we intuitively know that if life is handed to our children on a silver platter, they become platter pusses. They'll turn into self-centered, narcissistic, spoiled little, well, you get the idea. God's far more interested in your character than he is in your comfort. So Jesus prays this in verse 15. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Isn't that a great prayer to pray for your kids? In other words, he's saying, God, I'm not asking you to make life easy for them. I'm not asking you to take away their trials, to isolate them from every pain and every problem. I'm not asking you to, take, to just take them to heaven even right now. No, leave them in the world where there's tough times, and in that, protect them as they grow from the evil therein. 
Third, Jesus prays that they'll serve Christ effectively. Make them ready for your service through your truth. Your teaching is truth. We all should be praying for our children's future ministry because life is about service. Remember, life is preparation for eternity. One of the things we're going to be doing in eternity is serving God forever. So what does he want us to do here? Practice. Get it down. So we pray that we might discover a place to serve and give back for ourselves and for our children. Fourth, then he prayed that they will bring others to Christ regularly. Stefan's been talking about this. Jesus says in verse 20, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Jesus expects us to reproduce. Each generation must pass the word of God on to the next generation. So we pray they will pass on that message to others. Fifth, we pray that they will experience true fellowship. Another of the things we're going to do in heaven is we're going to love each other. And the greatest lesson in life on earth is learning how to really love, isn't it? See, it's easy to love people like you, but you're going to have to learn to love the unlovely. And that's what real fellowship is all about. Learning to love, to have harmony, to have unity, to have oneness with people who are very different from you. That, by the way, is the key to a good marriage, too. In 1721, Jesus says, my prayer is that they be of one heart and mind, just as you and I are one, Father, so that the world will believe that you sent me. I don't know how to underline this one enough today. Open your heart to your children. If you're a dad, don't keep your heart a secret. Find ways to value your child and make sure that your child feels loved because every child hungers, hungers to know his or her place in the father's heart. And that hunger never goes away and never does. Deep inside every human being, there is a hunger to know about the place in, in the heart of your father that you have. Some of you are here this morning and you know that place and it brings great gratitude and joy on a day like Father's Day. Some of you are here and you've never been given that gift and you, maybe you never will and there is an ache inside of you to be held like this and to be loved like that. I just want to invite all of you to open our hearts. I want to encourage you to do it even though it might feel awkward because the blessing in something like this is not that you do it with eloquence or smoothly. It's that you address a hunger that goes about as deep as any hunger can go inside the human spirit. And you need to know it's not too late at all. Fathers tend to underestimate the role they play in the hearts of their children. Dad, you're likely to think that your child, especially if they've grown up, that your child has friends, has activities, has a full life, maybe even has a family of his own, and that you're someplace now on the margin in your child's life. If nothing else, you need to understand this today, that for better or for worse, by your presence or by your absence, you stand at, at the very heart of your kid's world, and you always will. And it's not too late to let them know that. And if you're a child here this morning, and your dad is around, then I just want to encourage you not to wait to express your love for your father. Now, your dad may be flawed. We all are. But I want to encourage you to think that maybe it's time today, some way, to open your heart up to your dad. See, I got to play the daddy's home game from the side of the father 
but there are some times when I wonder how well I've actually played it. And what about the times when my arms weren't strong enough to catch them? And what about the times when the door opened too late? And what about the times when I was not there for them when they needed me? And it makes me want to play the game well in the time that I have left. I have five grandchildren now, and I get to do it all over again. Years ago now, a well-known columnist in the States wrote this. I received a letter from a single mother who had raised a son who was about to become a dad. Since he had no recollection of his own father, her question to me was, what do I tell him a father does? When my dad died in my ninth year, I too was raised by my mother, giving rise to the same question, what do fathers do? As far as I could observe, they brought around the car when it rained so everyone else could stay dry. They always took the family pictures, which is why they were never in them. They carved turkeys on Thanksgiving, kept the car gassed up, weren't afraid to go into the basement, mowed the lawn, and tightened the clothesline to keep it from sagging. It wasn't until my husband and I had children that I was able to observe firsthand what a father contributed to a child's life. What did he do to deserve his children's respect? He rarely fed them. He did anything to avoid their sagging diapers or wiping of any kind. What did he do? He threw them higher than his head until they were weak from laughter. He cast the deciding vote on the puppy debate. He listened more than he talked. He let them make mistakes. He allowed them to fall from their first two-wheeler without having a heart attack. He read a newspaper while they were trying to parallel park a car for the first time in preparation for their driver's test. If I had to tell someone's son what a father really does that is important, it would be that he shows up, that he shows up, that he shows up for the job of parenting in good times and in bad. He's a man who is constantly being observed by his children. They learn from him how to handle adversity and anger and disappointment and success. He won't laugh at their dreams no matter how impossible they might seem. He will dig out of bed at one in the morning when one of his children runs out of gas or gets stuck. He will make unpopular decisions and stand by them. When he's wrong and makes a mistake, he will admit it. He sets the tone for how family members treat one another, members of the opposite sex, and people who are different from them. By example, he can instill a desire to give something back to the community whose needs are almost always greater than our own. But mostly a good father involves himself in his kids' lives. You have the potential to be one of the most powerful forces in their lives. Grab it. Grasp it with both hands. Maybe you'll get a greeting card for your efforts. Probably not but it's steady work, end of quote. Most of all, you see, the Bible says, and you need to hear this truth today, whoever your dad may be, may have been, there is a God in heaven who can fill that role perfectly in your life. And he is so filled with love and so filled with tenderness towards you that Jesus teaches us to call him Abba, which is a word which means something like daddy. 
And one day, one glorious day, the door will open between all of his children and that heavenly father. And then there will be this stampede of feet and they will be running across the floor and there will be no more separation. And then all of God's children will run to him and know the strength of his arms. He will catch everyone without fail and they will be home with their father. We'll all get to play the game one final time. And then all of us who have committed our lives to God will say, Daddy, Abba, Father, we're home to stay, and we get to play the Daddy's home game forever. We want to grow up to be just like you, Daddy, because you are a good, good father.